Well, it's been a couple of weeks since lawmakers returned to Washington, D.C. from their summer recess. And sometimes, as we all know, when we spend some time out of the office, it takes a while to get back into the swing of things. You, you tend to ramp up slowly. You have to ease back into your work. Well, that was not the case in D.C., where senators, members of the House, and the Oval Office hit the ground running. They've all been busy with the budget, with designing a tax overhaul. There was a fiery speech given in the chamber of the UN which promoted the America first form of nationalism. And there was the continuing debate over health care reform. Republicans put together a proposal called the Graham-Cassidy Bill, which seeks to eliminate major sections of the Affordable Care Act. And is the last great chance for Republicans to repeal and replace Obamacare. They only have until the end of September to get it done under budget reconciliation rules, so they're trying to get it voted on in the Senate despite no real public hearings, no data from the Congressional Budget Office. And while this has been going on, there is a bipartisan Senate committee working on legislation to stabilize the Affordable Care Act. Meanwhile, the Democrats have introduced an approach to health care called the Medicare for All Act of 2017 introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders. It's essentially a a single-payer program. It has 16 Democratic co-sponsors and a lot of momentum. Today, all of us stand before you and proudly proclaim our belief that health care in America must be a right, not a privilege. Today, we begin the long and difficult struggle to end the international disgrace of the United States, our great nation, being the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all of our people. As proud Americans, our job is to lead the world on health care, not to be woefully behind every other major country. Today, we begin the debate vital to the future of our economy as to why it is that in the United States, we spend almost twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation on earth, and yet we have 28 million people without any health insurance, and even more who are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments. As a result of the incredible waste, bureaucracy, and profiteering in our dysfunctional health care system, we are now spending nearly 18% of our GDP on health care, $10,000 per person. Incredibly, if we continue the status quo, we will spend an estimated $49 trillion over the next decade on health care. That is economically unsustainable for our country. Today, we say the function of a rational health care system is to provide quality care to all in a cost-effective way. 
and not to continue a system which allows insurance companies and drug companies to make hundreds of billions of dollars in profits each year and to make healthcare industry CEOs extremely wealthy. Further, as you've heard this afternoon, the function of a good healthcare system is to enable people to get the healthcare when they need that healthcare, not to deal with an endless amount of paperwork and to spend hour after hour arguing with insurance companies about whether or not you have the coverage for the procedures that you need. The strengths of a Medicare for All program are not only its universality and its cost-effectiveness, it also ends the complexity of a system which adds enormous stress at a time when people need it the least. But Americans historically have had great doubts and great fears about a single-payer health care system, as Senator Sanders describes. There are visions of a, of a bloated government bureaucracy running health care, of, of the government making decisions about your health, about your doctor. There are fears of cost inefficiencies, long waits for necessary treatment. But is all that true? Is a single-payer healthcare system all the bad things that some Americans think? And, and why is it that the United States, as Senator Sanders points out, is the only major country on earth without healthcare for all its citizens? Well, those are really difficult questions to answer, but in keeping with the theme of this podcast to take the complex issues of Washington, D.C. and make them simple— we're going to start a series where we'll look at the healthcare systems of other industrialized nations. Each of them have different forms of government-run healthcare. Are they good? Are they bad? Can we learn something from them? Well, let's start by looking at England. I gave my friend Mark a call to start the conversation. Mark Laville lives in Plymouth, England, which is in the southwest of the country. He's the artistic director at the Barbican Theatre. He's married. He has two daughters. Um, right, what interests me, from my point of view, and lots of people who I interact with here, is we find it very difficult to understand why in the US, as you know, potentially, in theory, the most developed industrial country in the world, um, why you would have a healthcare system which wasn't free at the point of use which wasn't there for everybody regardless of their ability to pay and why you, you continue to argue for a, a healthcare system based on a, on a market principle only which is about private healthcare providers providing everything and I think my, our perception is it is false choice you're, uh, in your country for, in terms of healthcare whereas over here, what, I, what we experience, I think, what I, certainly I experience, is that I have choice. Before we continue the conversation, let's first take a look at the healthcare system in the UK. It's called the National Health Service, or NHS. It was started in 1946, shortly after the end of World War II. Before the NHS, healthcare in England was only available to the rich who could afford to pay privately for doctors and for treatment. 
the NHS provides health care to all 62 million British citizens, regardless of income. The system is funded through a tax levied on individuals and on employers. The tax to individuals is calculated as a percent of income. As a British citizen, you are entitled to health care at the point of need, free of charge. There's a standard charge for prescription medicines. Dental care requires additional payment by patients at the point of care. There is also a relatively small private health care market in the UK, which about 16% of citizens participate in. More on that later. Now that we understand the basics of the British healthcare system, let's get back to our conversation and see what it's like to live under the NHS. So the way it works here is in wherever you live, you have to register with a general practice surgery, which is where you call your doctor. Um, and they're called, they're called surgeries. It's where you go and see your doctor if you've got a sore toe or a, you know, chest infection or whatever. And that, and that, that over here is called your primary care physician. Yeah. So that's, that's it. So it's a collection of primary care physicians. There might be five or six in a particular organization called a surgery. Right. Um, I have a doctor who's called Dr. Anderson. If Dr. Anderson isn't available for me to see because her appointments are too booked up, then I will be able to see somebody else in that surgery. So, so let me ask you a question. So, so let, let's just say that uh, you know, winter time is coming up. Let's say you get a, a sore throat and you have a little bit of a mm-hmm. fever and you think you might have strep throat or something like that. Yeah. So what what yeah. what what happens? I phone up the surgery, the doctors. I phone up the general practice surgery and I say I'm not feeling very well. Can I make an appointment? And they will, depending on the system they use in the surgery, they will either give me an appointment this the week I am in. Yeah. So they'll say, Yep, uh, you can come on Friday at four o'clock and see Dr. Anderson, right? Or they'll say, if they can't fit me, if they can't get me an appointment this week, they will say we have open surgery on a Thursday morning and open surgery on a Monday morning. That means if you come up at about half past eight, nine o'clock, and are willing to wait an hour, we will get you to see a doctor. So that sounds relatively the same to the U.S. system. We have our primary care physician or primary care office, If we need to see a doctor for a routine concern, we call up. We make an appointment. They get us one as soon as they can with someone in the practice. Sometimes you have to wait a few days to see a doctor. So, so far it sounds like the two systems in practice are pretty similar. There is one big difference, however, between the two systems. In the UK, as a citizen, you have health coverage. In the U.S., you have to have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, you don't have a primary care physician. And if you're sick, you either don't see a doctor, you go to a free clinic, or you go to the emergency ward of a hospital where, in theory, they are required to see and they're required to treat you. Okay, so that's it for standard care. But what about specialized care. What about if you have a health concern beyond what would require standard care? What if you need a specialist? Well, I asked Mark that question. So, so, yeah. that, so then let's say that you 
let, not you, but but someone in the UK who's who's a, a citizen. But let's say they have more than strep throat. Let's say something something happens to them where they need a specialty, an orthopedist or a, a cardiac person. Or say what happened with my wife, Jules. Right. Um, you know, she got a, she felt a lump in her armpit. One evening, she felt a lump in her armpit and freaked out, and went. She knows that's a sign of potential breast cancer. So what does she do then? What does somebody do then? Right. Is that what your question? Yes. yes. Basically, the next morning, first thing in the morning, we phoned up the general practice surgery and said, uh, my wife has a lump in her armpit. It feels like it could be a massive symptom of breast cancer. We want to see somebody. And they said, uh, come up this afternoon. Uh, uh, so immediately we had an emergency appointment that day. Yeah. And we went, she went straight up to the doctor who felt the lump under her arm, looked at her, felt her breast, that side, and said, I'm not happy with this. I'm going to give you an immediate referral, or a pretty immediate referral, to the hospital, to the specialist oncology hospital. Mm-hmm. She got an immediate referral, i.e. this doctor phoned up from his desk there and then and said, I need to uh, get somebody a referral within the next 48 hours. Um, and within 48 hours, therefore, she was seen by a specialist oncologist. Um, she had scans, biopsies, and then we had to wait 10 days for the results of the biopsy, which is pretty standard anywhere. I mean, that's that's clinical practice. You, you just yep. that's how long it we takes. Waited. Yep. Yeah, that's how long it takes. And yep. then we waited 10 days, which was the worst bit. Yeah. And there's no there's no speeding that 10 days up. No. You go private, it's the same. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, and because there are targets within the NHS here, the National Health Service, for if you if you have suspected cancer, there are there are regulations that say you must be seen for various stages of it, yeah, mm-hmm. within a certain time frame. Right. There are laws about it. So so the, so, so the, you can't so the be kept N- on a waiting list forever. Right. The NHS is in quotes required to see yes. a person who is given a particular diagnosis within a certain number of days. Yeah, okay. and with particular uh, things like heart disease and cancer, they are they are stipulated. <clears throat> um, and then there are other there are other um, uh, diseases, if you like, that haven't yet had a stipulation. <clears throat> so, for example, let's think about this. There's a big conversation going on about sepsis mm-hmm. at the moment. That yep. There should be this, a, a, a similar a similar um, stipulation for sepsis. Um, so, so yeah, so. Ten days later, we got the results, and she had positive. She had two cancers in her breast, and and then she had a specialist assigned to her, and immediately was booked in for surgery, initial surgery, and was then in for initial surgery within seven days of the results of that. Um, so within seven days after the ten days. After the ten days, she yeah. was in surgery. Yeah. One issue you hear Americans facing again and again is the staggering cost of a hospital stay. And unfortunately, it's usually not something that you choose to do. So you don't have a lot of control over it. You get sick, you're admitted to the hospital, you're given a bed, and there you are. It's a very confusing system. Sometimes certain doctors within a hospital aren't approved by your insurance plan, so if they treat you, then the cost of that treatment is your responsibility. 
and other times certain diagnostic testing has not been approved by your health insurance plan, but the hospital does the testing and it's the patient's responsibility to pay for that testing. And all the while you're laying in the bed just trying to get better and get out of the hospital. And then when you do leave, you get a bill that may be beyond your means to pay. And it winds up catapulting you and and your family into a financial freefall. So how does that compare with the system in the UK? Mark took me through what happens to a British citizen if they're admitted to the hospital. Which is, let's say something happens to you or a member of your family and you, for whatever reason, are admitted to the hospital to be treated. And, Mm -hmm. And you go through or a loved one in your family goes through a course of treatment in the hospital, and then you are discharged from that hospital. When you leave that hospital under the NHS, what do you as an individual owe that hospital? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. That's the principle of the NHS, that it's free at the point of delivery. So 100%. 100% I don't have a debt. 100% of the care that you're given for whatever reason when you are admitted into a hospital, 100% of that is covered under your under the NHS yep. coverage. Okay. Yes, and that includes being fed. Right, the the food that includes yeah. being fed, the food, breakfast, lunch and supper. Yeah. And is that the same for emergency care let's say for example you you know fracture your wrist or whatever and you and it's an emergency situation you go to the er and you're treated but you're released that same evening they just wrap up your wrist or whatever when you leave that discharge no charge right free and i don't and there's no debt because i've already paid for it in principle because i'm paying tax into the system well okay well what about prescription medications. As we know in the United States, that's a bit of a moving target. If your doctor prescribes a medication, it has to be on your health insurance company's formulary for them to cover a portion of the cost. If it's not on the formulary, even though your doctor has prescribed it, you are responsible for the full cost. And if that's ever happened to you, then you know that the cost can be staggering because Unlike health insurance companies, you don't get to negotiate a price with the pharmacy. The cost of the prescriptions in the United States is is confusing. If there's a generic available, you may have to pay a relatively small amount at the pharmacy while your insurance company pays the rest. If there's no generic available, you have to share a greater burden of the cost. And if it's a highly specialized medicine for something like cancer the out-of-pocket cost to you can be shockingly high. And this system varies by each health insurance plan. It, It varies by state. And sometimes it even varies by region in each state. And it's really hard to get the data from insurance companies about how they calculate the cost to you of each prescription medication. So it's really confusing. Well, how does it work in the UK under their healthcare system? How does a British citizen pay for a medicine prescribed by their doctor? Let me ask you, can I ask you a very specific question sure, sure. about how um, 
prescription drugs work? So let, let's say yep. you go to the doctor and you get a, and, and let's just say a routine prescription for something. Yep. Where do you go yep. to get that filled? Uh, so I go to the doctor. The doctor, my general practitioner at, at the surgery, yeah. The doctor will give me a prescription and write it out on a form. I take that up to the chemist, the pharmacy, whatever. Um, and, and, and that's and that's that a, that's a that's a that's a Boots or so that's a private company. Yeah, it's a Boots um, or it's a or it's a co-op or it's a, yeah, it's a private organisation. Mm-hmm. And they have a contract with the NHS, and they will provide that prescription. Um, they will ask me to sign the back of the prescription, and I turn it over, and there are various boxes. If I'm picking up a prescription for my child who is under i can't remember whether it's under 16 or under 18 i think it's under 16 yeah it's free i don't pay anything completely it's okay for, for for the under 16 year old child yeah right it's free don't pay anything i just tick the this is for esme laville it's in her name and she's my child she's under 16 i pay i tick it and i, I don't pay anything regardless of how much money i earn right if it's for me, and I am not on various elements of welfare, right, I have to pay a charge. Mm-hmm. And that charge is a fixed charge for each item on the prescription, whatever it is. And that varies. So if that, and it varies. The, the charge doesn't vary, but if I've got a prescription with three drugs on it, yeah, mm-hmm. one of them is um, a cancer drug that costs... Three hundred pounds a course of three weeks. Yeah, no, three hundred. Let's say three hundred pounds a pill, right? Mm-hmm. I pay seven pounds ninety-five or whatever it is for that. And that and that fee has been negotiated with the drug company and decided upon um, by the NHS. That fee is fixed by the government. Yes, right. via the fixed by the NHS via the government in various kind of wheels of government. But and and it has gone up. Um, in the last eight, eight uh, three years, um, and it keep and it keeps going up, but it's still a single charge. It's about I think it's seven ninety five, seven pounds ninety five. So about about nine dollars probably. And that and that varies by like if you were picking up a generic antibiotic or something, it would be the charge would be less. No, the charge would be the same. The same. Okay, so it, it's, rega- it's exactly the same. Regardless of the medication, it's a set charge. About 85% of British citizens rely solely on the NHS for their health care. There is, however, a small private supplemental health insurance market that provides some advantages to people who have the means to participate. It's important to remember, however, that even those with supplemental health insurance rely on the NHS for the majority of their health care needs. So, so we've got this parallel system of uh, private healthcare. So um, my father, as well as paying into the National Health Service via his general taxation, also had a private healthcare deal that he also paid into, which meant that for various things, if he wanted to, he would quote-unquote go private, because he could, right? Mm -hmm. And that would mean for some things, he would be seen quicker, i.e., 
within 48 hours for things that the NHS deemed he might have to wait a week for or two weeks for, right? But none of those things would be, in principle, in theory, none of those things would, the health service, would, the National Health Service would make you wait seven days for. In principle, none of those things would be life-threatening. Right. So, um, so it just gets you to the front of the queue, if you Gets like. you to the front of the queue. So is the NHS a good system? Is the NHS a bad system? Well, it's a really, really tough question to answer, but perhaps a window into the answer is to look at two measures. Number one, the statistics on how it's performing against certain measures and how those measures compare to the U.S. And number two, what British citizens think of the NHS. So let's look at the first measure. Let's look at some numbers. The UK healthcare system is ranked as one of the most efficient in the world. The country spends 8.4% GDP against healthcare. The US is roughly twice that at 16%. The average citizen in the UK spends $2,992 on healthcare per year. The US is $7,290. Why is the UK system more cost-efficient than the US system? The simple answer is that it's better run. Even with the inefficiencies that come with government, the UK system is a non-profit system. The US is a for-profit system, primarily run through companies that profit from their management of healthcare, thereby driving up overall costs. The other key factor is the cost of prescription drugs and medical devices to the system. The UK is one system with the power to negotiate lower prices. The US is a fragmented system without that same ability. Let's look at the cost of some procedures for comparison. In the UK, it cost $2,641 to have a baby. In the US, it's $9,775. In the UK, it costs $3,400 to get your appendix removed. In the US, it's almost $14,000. Need your knee replaced? It's $7,800 in the UK. It's $25,000 in the US. Your doctor says you need an MRI. $335 in the UK, $1,121 in the US. In a study of seven industrialized nations, the UK was ranked number two in overall healthcare delivery, the U.S. was last as number seven. The U.K. was number two in access to healthcare, the U.S. number seven. One of the criticisms of a government-run system is that it takes a long time to get care. In this study, the U.S. and the U.K. were ranked number four and number five, respectively. So, there doesn't appear to be a difference in how long it takes to get care in the UK versus the US. Any measure of how long people live has many factors associated with it that determine the number, but it's certain that healthcare is one important factor in longevity. The average life expectancy in the UK is 81.2 years. In the US, it's 79.3 years. Now, Certainly. The, the U.S. system has some very positive things to it. There are some of the best medical treatment centers in the world in the United States. The Cleveland Clinic for cardiac care, for example, Memorial Sloan Kettering for cancer, the list goes on. 
The five-year cancer survival rates are 40% higher in the U.S. versus the U.K. Six times the number of U.S. patients with diabetes receive care within six months versus U.K. patients with diabetes. So it's a bit of a mixed bag with the numbers, but the fact is that on key measures, the U.K. system comes out ahead of the U.S. system. Let's look at the number two measurement to get a view if the British healthcare system is good or if it's bad. That measurement is if British citizens like their healthcare system. Well, like any large group of people, the answer is going to be mixed, but there may be a clue in one point of data. In a British social attitude study, 61% of British citizens who were asked said they were satisfied with the NHS system. That's about three times the percent of Americans who are satisfied with the U.S. system. I asked Mark if, overall, if he was happy with the NHS system. So my, I've had two children. One of my children is alive because of the NHS. Mm. You know, uh, Esme would have died at birth um, if the service hadn't been as it was. Um, my experience, personal from a small child with my parents, all the way through to my children and my family, my experience of the NHS has been nothing but um, amazing. Is the NHS a perfect system? Of course not. No large system can be perfect, but given the debate that's emerging in the U.S. on a single-payer healthcare system, it's at least informative to see that the British single-payer system is working for its citizens. One issue that the NHS is having is funding. With its aging population, with the rise of the overall cost of delivering healthcare, the NHS needs to seek additional sources of revenue. One place to naturally turn is to raise taxes. Now, you would think that any discussion of raising taxes would be thought of as negative by British citizens. But a study done by the King's Fund think tank found that two-thirds, 66%, of the public were willing to, quote, pay more taxes in order to maintain the level of spending needed, close quote, on the health care service. In the same study, 77% of people believe the NHS to be, quote, crucial to British society, close quote. So there you go. But for the U.S., the debate will continue as it should on health care. What system is best for the country? What system do the majority of citizens support? Can we improve the Affordable Care Act? Do we need a new system? Well, time will tell, and our lawmakers will continue the debate. And if you're listening to this podcast within the United States, one thing will be critical, and that's your voice. If there's one thing that we hope this podcast gives you, it's the information you need to start a discussion. Talk to your friends. Call your members of Congress. Call your senators. Tell them how you feel about the issues. If you don't know how they stand on the issues, ask them and tell them that you support their point of view or that you respectfully disagree with their point of view. The better you know the facts, the better your argument will be. And if you get confused, if you have questions, email us at our website, dcmadesimple.com, and we'll get you the answers. Thanks for listening, and talk soon.